Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, Alexander Dugan is somebody who is shrouded in a lot of mystery for people. It's someone who they've heard you know, rumors of, they've heard different uh, opinions about his uh, connection with Vladimir Putin and, and different political ideologies. And it's hard to clarify some of that because his books are increasingly difficult to find even in our Western free markets. I had to work quite hard uh, to read just one of his books. Luckily for me, I have uh, with me on the show today, Michael Millerman. Uh, Mr. Millerman is a YouTuber. He also has a, uh, a set of courses that teach on a number of different philosophers, including Dugan himself. And if I'm correct, he also was involved in the translation of the fourth political theory. Is that right, Michael? That's right. Excellent. So he's a great source for this. And we're going to be diving deep into a number of different things. As I was, as I was talking to Michael at the beginning of this, I started taking notes uh, about what I wanted to talk about. And I think I made it to chapter three and realized I already had an hour's worth of notes. So we're going to focus on just a few topics. We're not going to be able to cover everything today. But if we're very lucky, uh, we might get Mr. Millerman back and be able to kind of expand on this in more depth. But before we do all that, guys, I want to talk to you really quick about today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is a conservative nonprofit dedicated to educating the next great American. ISI understands that conservative and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and compelled to defend their reputation and dignity while seeking to carve out a brighter future. ISI has a variety of different content, events, internships, and fellowships geared towards helping students and opening up career opportunities. ISI offers graduate students and entry-level journalists the opportunity to receive fellowships and secure internships. Nate Hockman, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, got his start on National Review through ISI, and he's just one of many journalists and academics who were able to start their careers with the help of ISI. This spring, ISI is going to be hosting a debate between Michael Knowles and Deidre McCloskey on the subject of transgenderism that will be live-streamed on YouTube. In the fall, everyone's favorite Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, will be giving the keynote address at ISI's annual gala. On all issues, both economic and cultural, ISI wants their students to know that they're not shying away from the problems facing our country, because letting the left win is a pathetic way to watch civilization die. To learn more, check out ISI.org. That's ISI.org. You can follow the link down below in the description of this video. All right, guys. So like I said, we're going to be focusing mainly on Dugan's book, The Fourth Political Theory. Now, there are many books that Dugan has written. This is the only one that I am familiar with at this point. And to be fair, this is only my first pass on it. Normally, I try to go ahead and spend a good amount of time. But unfortunately, uh, I had to work with kind of a PDF and, a, and an audio recording. I'm still waiting for my physical copy to come in. So I haven't I haven't gone through this in quite the level of detail that I normally like to. Uh, but as I understand, uh, there are a number of chapters that were taken and put into a second book. Is that correct? There's there's another book that was kind of uh, put together of chapters that were not included in this one? That's right. And that's called The Rise of the Fourth Political Theory. Okay. So hopefully, this, so this might also be incomplete. There might be additional, I'm not sure if there's a natural break in there or, or is there a further expansion? You know, there are chapters that were in the original Russian that weren't included in the first volume that was put together for a conference in July 2012. So I think the publisher wanted to use what they had available. And then the chapters that were in the Russian, but not in the first volume that came out in English were released as the rise of the fourth political theory. But I'll tell you one thing, which is that in some sense, 
all of Dugan's books connect to one another. So there are passages even in the fourth political theory that refer to ethnosociology or to his books on the sociology of the imagination. It's a kind of universe of discourse, but I do think still this is a natural starting place. And in some sense, it's self-contained, even though there is that second volume. Okay, so hopefully we can we can uh, get enough here to, to have a good discussion, even though I don't have a broader understanding of some of the uh, the other particulars that he'll, he'd be referencing throughout there. Uh, but to go ahead and get started, for those who just might not be familiar, could you explain a little bit about Dugan's background and also how you first came to kind of interact and become interested in his work? Sure. So I'll start with how I became interested in him. I was an undergraduate student at the University of British Columbia studying philosophy and studying political philosophy as well, in part. I have a background in the Russian language because my family's from the former Soviet Union. So that's how I got into the Russian, the world of Russian thinkers. But I also had an interest in mysticism, religious studies and political philosophy. And so I was sort of looking for Russian political, theological type figures to be reading and to be studying. And I came across an article about Dugan. This was probably 2010 or 2011. And the article basically argued that he's Russia's philosopher king. He's a kind of philosopher mystic, and you can't understand Russia today and Russia's place on the world stage better than you could do if you did it through Dugan. And so that just met, that ticked all the boxes for me. You know, there's the mystical dimension, the philosopher king, the Russia side, and the key to understanding something important about this massive civilizational state and country and important player in world affairs. So that's when I went out and started digging more. And the first book of his that I found was The Fourth Political Theory in Russian, obviously. Uh, and then I undertook a pro process of translating that. And that was the first of several books I ended up translating. As for Dugin, who he is, I like to say that he's a, a Russian philosopher, ideologue and activist, because he combines these several functions in himself that are often parceled out among different people. You know, sometimes you have a philosopher whose books get read by an ideologue, whose ideological uh, tracts get put into practice by political parties or political agents or activists. Dugan somehow does all of that himself. Uh, he's built over 30 odd years um, a universe of books that articulate the meaning of Russia's place in the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's the specifically Russian part. But the one that I think is more interesting for people outside of Russia is a general theory of international and political life, one that spans from the foundational metaphysics, ontology or first philosophy, all the way to organizing institutions and having strategic partnerships and tactical alliances geopolitically. So he's one of these figures whose intention is to have a comprehensive and as it were epic in the sense of uh, broad ranging with great heights and depths, an epic theory of global affairs and of man's place in the world. And so he's been doing that book after book. He's quite prolific. He said about himself that his biography is his bibliography. So that shows you how important it is to him to be a writer, a thinker, and somebody dealing with these questions. What are we doing in post-modernity? And if we want to get out of the situation, how? I, I think it's really interesting too. I, for him, he would have to be all those things, right? For him, like the, simply espousing the theory would not be enough. You'd have to you have to be in the action of doing it to really understand it and embody it to really have it mean anything. 
And yeah, that's so, right. So yeah. in other words, one of his ideas of what it is to think is that it's not just the disembodied abstract practice removed from the existential concerns of human and political life. That's for sure. Uh, but he's also just had to single-handedly put together a project. Now, as you, I think, posted about on Twitter when you were uh, commenting on the book, and as I'm sure you saw in the first part of the book, he's pitched it as an open project. So he has mm -hmm. other collaborators and contributors and thinkers, but somehow, you know, it has rotated around his efforts for all that time, and it's an accomplishment. Absolutely. So like I said, we're not going to get to everything today, but I'm hoping that we can maybe just work through a few of the key points early on in the book, uh, kind of expound on those. And they're very interesting. They cross over some of the philosophy I'm more familiar with uh, when it comes to the neo-reactionary sphere. Want to, want to kind of touch on some of those points and, and maybe uh, examine some of that. But to start out with, he kind of lays out the, of course, the three political theories of modernity, right? The, 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 the three uh, liberal theory or the three theories he talks about, of course, are liberalism. That would be the first one, communism in reaction to liberalism, and then fascism in reaction to communism and liberalism. And he kind of explains that the obviously fascism kind of exploded itself through a, a couple different problems, including, of course, obviously Nazism and everything else that followed with that. Uh, communism kind of died of old age and liberalism kind of reigns supreme at the end of this thing. But that's put us into a different state, which is post-liberalism, in which liberalism is kind of assumed, and that puts us in a very different situation. Could you talk a little bit about what he means by kind of that post-liberal situation? Yeah, so Dugan has an argument that liberalism, when it's contesting other ideologies, it's in the field of political combat that hasn't yet been resolved. So when liberalism, communism, and fascism are fighting, they're fighting for who gets to dominate and become, as it were, the status quo operating in the background. So before one of them has won, the background isn't established, it's not settled yet, it's contested. When liberalism wins, it goes from being a player in the field to constituting the field itself. So that suddenly after the victory of liberalism, everything that shows up as a political phenomenon does so in the hue of or against the backdrop of liberalism's dominance. And when that happens, when it goes from being one among the fighters in the arena to the arena itself, everything changes. Everything changes about itself and everything changes about that uh, field of contestation. Because in the era of the three political theories, you could oppose liberalism by getting into the ring, by getting into the arena. The era of post-liberalism, suddenly the only thing that shows up as an opponent to it, Dugan analyzes this at various points throughout the text, is it's not so clear what can oppose liberalism after it becomes the last ideology standing. So another part of his argument, for example, is that in the classical phase of the combat between the three ideologies, liberalism was dedicated to the individual and to no external authorities over and above the individual, kind of liberation from collective identities that are externally opposed, like church identity, for example, and things like that. But he has an argument that when liberalism wins, it takes all of the energy and all of the attack that it had previously directed outside of itself against external forms of hierarchy and so on, and redirects it into the individual himself. So that the postmodern individual, the post-liberal, postmodern individual, now attacks not only external authorities, but internal authorities like the authority of reason itself.
mm -hmm. so that the post-liberal individual uh, culminates no longer in the primacy of reason, but in an attack on that, the liberation of our schizophrenic urges, uh, irony, and all of these other uh, uniquely postmodern characteristics. Um, so it's a nice analysis. You know, it's one thing when there's a fight, because the fight somehow constitutes the field of the political. When he says at the beginning of fourth political theory that it seems like politics has come to an end, that's what he means is that at the ideological level, there's no longer a viable contestation with liberal dominance. Yeah, and the end of politics is really important there. I think he he leans very into that end of history from Francis Fukuyama, that, that language, and saying that, uh, you know, now that liberalism has emerged the victor, everything moves out of the realm of the political and is re-territorialized into the, the realm of the marketplace, right? And so all questions really become questions of economic efficiency, uh, that we, we move out of the ability to really think of things in a... Uh, as a specifically economic uh, term and, and really only have the ability to think of them in this in this kind of marketplace scenario, it really does feel that like that explanation, of course, of Schmidt, and, and he references Schmidt regularly, so I'm sure that that's part of it, of kind of liberalism, putting all the existential questions in the broom closet so that you could just kind of create, the, you know, a minimum viable morality that, that uh, allows the marketplace to function, but we don't actually ever remove those existential questions but it feels like he's saying like there, there's just people no longer know how to even engage with those politically anymore they've they've kind of even just lost the vocabulary for that which i think is very interesting because again it also kind of uh, overlaps with someone who i also like quite a bit alsdale mcintyre uh kind of kind of losing the ability to have even moral conversations or political conversations because the language of the marketplace has now just dominated everything yeah, that's right. So definitely the existential concerns or the key substantive questions are pushed aside. They're treated as either nonsensical or as resolved. And there's a concern that if you reopen the existential questions, you reopen the realm of the political and therefore you let the dogs loose because the realm of the political is one of potential violence and of potential conflict. The The heart of political conflict is a conflict over the good and over the meaningful and all of that. And if you just consider that as settled, then maybe you can have a world of tolerance, peace, and compromise, as the liberals pretend to be interested in, whereas obviously their logic betrays the fact that they're in a full-out war against any alternative to liberalism. So that's true. We've lost the vocabulary, and Dugan is definitely interested in analyzing that situation, giving us the vocabulary. One thing that I think is nice about his approach, I have benefited from it personally, and I think it stands out in some sense as unique or as distinct, I would put it like this. Some people who are searching for a vocabulary in the context of liberal dominance to talk about meaningful and good life, some of them go to ancient political philosophy. Mm. Aristotle, in particular, Stoics in some cases, Plato for sure. So you have the return to classical political philosophy, the ancients, in some cases, uh, religious thought, Aquinas, uh, you know, a kind of Christian common good vocabulary. But as a rule, those people tend not to go all the way in the direction as well of German philosophers like Heidegger. You know, it's we're going to go in the direction of antiquity. We're not going to go in the direction of German postmodernity, let's say. Another group of thinkers in trying to criticize liberalism goes in the direction of German postmodernity, but it does so from the left. So you have leftist thinkers who are well versed in Husserl, Heidegger, Kant, Nietzsche and all of these other thinkers. Uh, but one of the things that Dugan thinks is important is that we can't actually understand our situation 
if we don't see the whole picture, and part of the whole picture is the postmodern element. Therefore, we need the language to understand. And we get that language not just by returning to Christian thought, not just by returning to classical thought, but by incorporating all of the theoretical insights of other schools of thought and other disciplines, partially the postmodern theorists I just mentioned, but also, for example, he thinks there are other disciplines we need to draw on, geopolitics being one of them, sociology being another one of them, uh, structural linguistics, and so on. So he wants the full arsenal of intellectual disciplines to help us to grasp the unique character of postmodernity. Uh, I don't think that's always the case on the right, because sometimes, again, you, it's hard to stand fully for the defense of the Western tradition and to take seriously on their own terms to the extent that they deserve it, the critics of the Western tradition culminating in people, you know, some in some sense, the critics of the Western tradition uh, among those German thinkers. So you have to have, in my view, uh, Dugan represents the alternative that says, let's try to grasp modernity on the basis of both pre-modernity and post-modernity. We're going to hit it from two flanks and really try to get the big picture that way, which I think is a worthwhile uh, enterprise. Yeah, I unfortunately am not uh, familiar with Heidegger. I've got uh, uh, being in time on the bookshelf, but I haven't tackled it yet. Uh, I'm looking forward to to eventually getting in there. So I, I am missing some of this as well. So very useful to have someone to, to kind of fill in uh, those parts. But I, I think it's very interesting that the... So and I talked about this too with my friend uh, Gio Pinchetti, who's very well uh, versed in, in a lot of postmodern theory. But a lot of conservatives have been, a lot of people on the right have been told that they have to be very worried about postmodernity. It's the boogeyman in the closet that will come and destroy all truth and 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 all knowledge and and, and all value, and everything will just dis disassemble itself into relativism. Very interestingly, for I think for a lot of people who might not be familiar with some of this thought, is Dugan, from what I can tell, really looks at this as the opportunity, kind of this collapse of logic in on itself, the, the absurdity and contradictions reaching uh, levels that can no longer the, the can no longer be borne by kind of the logical load. It the collapse of this creates a situation where mysticism, religion things things from beyond this very stifled realm of logic can reemerge in into the discussion they're freed once again to kind of come back and and be a part of this because they're no longer uh completely locked out by this rigid uh, uh commitment to uh pure reason and uh he had he had one quote that i really liked where i, I wrote it down here uh, modernity was about the death of god uh and and kind of the whole point of this is to kind of say uh, the the people in postmodernity don't even know what the death of God means anymore. They no longer have a concept of God. It's a, the death of who, right? It is what he he explains it as. You know, the people would not understand the death of God, and so that allows then a return to to discussions about God in in kind of a whole new context, a whole new way that is not burdened by all these modern discourses surrounding the subject. And kind of opens people up to to understanding a different way of being and a different way of understanding value. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a point well made by him, I think, because he's the section there is called the return of myths and archaics. So everything that modernity had displaced as uh, as pre-modern, as a prejudice, as a relic of the past, as antique or ancient or outdated, in principle, is in play again. 
with the end of modernity. We are at a tipping point in America. With 400,000 children in the U.S. foster care system and a quarter of those awaiting a forever family, Christians must step up. This is Jack Graham, senior pastor at Prestonwood Baptist Church, inviting you to Chosen, a summit addressing these urgent needs on Saturday, April 13th. Chosen will empower churches to begin foster care and adoption ministries and equip families who are adopting or fostering. We have great speakers joining me, including Sadie Robertson Huff and Governor Greg Abbott of the great state of Texas, along with dozens of breakout sessions. I urge you to join us and help make a difference in the lives of these precious children. Register at Prestonwood.org chosen. So when the conservative critics look at postmodernity and criticize it, Dugan does too, but he, like they, shines his light on the freaks and the monsters and the chimeras and the uh, cyborgs, you know, the post-humanism and uh, the sort of degenerate, degraded uh, insanity. But together with the freak show, you also have the possibility of the return of genuine religious faith and of the re-articulation and re-assertion of forms of life that modern dogmatism had discarded or had um, tried to dispose of. So that, again, just as an intellectual operation. So a simple, a simple way in which I think that's relevant is you say, okay, the modern interpretation of the human being, it showed us something, you know, it had some, let's say, some upside, some benefit to it. It taught us something relevant about science and technology. It, it, let's say, you know, it accomplished something, but it came at a cost. And one of the things that it came at the expense of was an understanding of the full potentials of a human being. The modern human being is a very narrow, small interpretation of the human being proper. Individual is a very small, narrow interpretation of human being proper. So Dugan has this view, what was left out of the picture? And part of what was left out of the picture that got suppressed in modernity, the what he calls, and he's got ver various presentations of this in other texts and in other places, but you can say, for example, all right, you had the rationalist th history of theology and a rationalist kind of do uh, dogmatics. But what about the undercurrent of mysticism, like you mentioned, of the Dionysian, of the dark logos? Dark not in the sense of evil, but dark in the sense of, uh, you know, mystics often speak in terms of um, the darkness that is even higher than the light and things like that. So there's a whole realm of texts and ideas and experiences and uh, perspectives that fell out of the picture in modernity, including as I say, the classical teachings, like that's why Dugan has several essays on Plato, for example, on the possibility of a return to Plato, but not only that, of other figures and of other teachings. So why is that helpful for us? Because in part, I think his work appeals to those of us or those readers who believe that the deep experiences of the human being are be that the, basically there's a war on the human being right now we see it at a surface level which is like the war on gender identity the war on traditional faith the war on certain other um you know normal and natural roles and somehow the human being himself is under the gun but there's you know there's more uh, to the human being than we even think about when it's not just that you know what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. What is it to be a spiritual being? What is it to be an ensouled being? What is it to be a questioning and thinking being? What is it to exist? What's our relationship to time? All of these kind of philosophical or abstract questions, they get, you can access them again. If you put everything that had pushed them aside into question and suspend it. And so that's his operation here. His idea is that 
that'll help with the construction of new models of understanding that have some political relevance. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, because his language sounds, again, very much like uh, many neo-reactionary thinkers that I have read. He, he himself seems to be an accelerationist. He regularly encourages accelerating the collapse of kind of the this postmodern structure to move on to the next thing. Most of the guys like Nick Land saw this as the opportunity to kind of achieve escape velocity from politics at all, as where he sees it as a as, a, as the ability to kind of have reemergent tradition and reemergent mysticism and and and, and moral particulars and, and so many things that have been locked uh, locked out. Which I just I just thought was very fascinating because I've I've seen this argument before. I've seen this line of reasoning before, but I've only seen it with the kind of the goal of of accelerating and escaping the human, as where his is the is ex accelerating and escaping the prison that is locked, kind of the the individual inside of this system and can reconnect to something far more ancient as emerges kind of outside of these constraints. Yeah, I think that's right. The idea of an accelerationism that leaves the human being behind, broadly speaking, I think he would regard as evil, antichrist, mm -hmm. satanic, okay? That's mm -hmm. a negative polarity. But the accelerationism that allows for the reassertion or for the reinception of what's uniquely human, he regards as a good thing. So. I know you mentioned you are, um, I won't take any Heidegger for granted in what I'm about to say, but I think it's a nice way of mentioning this. So Heidegger had an idea that Dugan does discuss in the fourth political theory that we live at the end of philosophy, that nihilism, alienation, uh, technological interpretation of the world, all of these things are characteristic of the fact that we live at the end of the process that began with the first philosophers in Greece. But Heidegger had another idea, which is that properly understood the history of philosophy, if we really grasp it and its significance, doing so will prepare the ground for what he called another beginning of philosophy. And Dugan, for whom Heidegger is such an important figure, his first book on Heidegger is called Martin Heidegger, The Philosophy of Another Beginning. So the idea is that you want to accelerate the end because you want the end to end as it were, for the sake of what? For the sake of another beginning, another beginning of philosophy, another spark, as it were, in the human soul or spirit, where we once again become connected and rooted to the grounds of our existence. So in that sense, the exact opposite of the idea of reaching escape velocity, because escape velocity would be becoming uh, unroo unrooted, uh, uprooted or ungrounded from what for Dugan is the soil of our existence. Uh, and that for him is ult ultimately his main, the main interpretations of his that I'm interested in and where I think he puts his emphasis is that that soil is philosophy for him, you know, and Heidegger is the key to all of that. But yeah, the postmodern world should come to an end. That doesn't mean that the world should be destroyed. It means that the coordinates of interpretation about the nature of man, the nature of time, the nature of politics, the reigning screen through which we see the world that has to play itself out so that it can be replaced and we can actively have a role in that process uh, through the free construction of something like the fourth political theory. It's not, uh, just to be clear for anybody who's listening, Dugan is very adamant about the fact that it's not inevitable, it's not automatic, it is an act of human 
will. It's a project, but it's one that can either be, as I say, rooted in the truth of things or acting against the truth of things. But it's an open question. Therefore, it's a political task. So there's another Heideggerian concept that I just don't have because I, I haven't read that hopefully you can help a, a flesh out a little bit. And it, it, I might be asking, hey, can you do a 19 hour lecture in, in 10 minutes here? But, you know, just just do your best. Um, uh, the concept of uh, I'm probably going to pronounce this incorrectly. Day sign or uh, what's the sign is how I would say it. But OK, it's probably yeah. Uh, so that's very important to uh to dugan obviously he brings it up uh very often in this could you explain a little bit um uh again i might have asked you just explain an entire book but <laughs> could yeah, you explain I'll, a little bit about that concept sure i'll try to be brief about it it's mm -hmm. the idea of human existence so normally if i were to say you know uh characterize yourself as an entity right like what does it mean to be a human being so some people will have some kind of answer for themselves. For example, a materialistic answer. You know, I'm just an evolved animal and I'm subject to all of the laws of biological evolution. Or someone might say, you know, I'm body, soul, and spirit in some sort of configuration with one another. So imagine the plane of answers that you can give to the question, what kind of entity are you? Or, you know, who are consciousness, um, embodied consciousness, all of these kinds of answers. Heidegger, from whom the term, from whom uh, Dugan uses the term Dasein in the specifically Heideggerian sense, Heidegger basically had said, look, if you look at all of those different kinds of answer, there's a layer below them. There's something about ourselves, namely our openness to being, the fact that we are beings open to being is somehow this ground that's taken for granted by all these other answers. So whether it's a Christian or an atheist or a evolutionary or some other kind of answer, Heidegger said, there's this unexplored prior dimension underlying that. And that dimension primarily concerns the question, what does it mean to be? So we are, as I said at the beginning, if we interpret ourselves as an entity, but what kind of entity or being are we? Am I the same kind of being as the things that are on my table, like here's a cup, a book, a phone, paper, pencil, camera, TV screen, and me in the chair, are those all the equivalent kind of entity? What is it that's uniquely the case about the human being? Heidegger gave all of his attention over his whole life and several thousands of pages and many tens of books to that question. And the realm that he believes himself to have discovered and, you know, you, I guess you'll have to decide for yourself when you read Being in Time whether he did or didn't. But that realm, he denotes with the term Dasein, which basically for our, for our purposes means the Da is like the location there and the sign is being, being there. So he reoriented all of our, all of our tools of analysis to the question of our being, which not everybody had done. And that's why Heidegger was a revolution somehow in the history of philosophy. And Dugan says, look, as he, look, as he took what he learned from Heidegger and he looked at the field of political theory and political ideology, he said, the liberal interpretation of the human being as an individual, the communist focus on class, the Nazi focus on race, the fascist focus on state, all of these things, Dugan observed, they also are on the second floor of the building, so to speak, not on the ground floor of the building. They also are not linked in an understanding of the question of being. And so somehow you can take your ax, as it were, to all of the modern ideologies, 
digging underneath them by following Heidegger into the question of being. And when you do that, Dugan believes, you come out the other side of it with a different set of concepts and a different way of understanding political phenomena, which can provide an alternative to all three of liberalism, communism, and fascism. This is a difficult thing. Um, this is a, not a very easy notion to grasp. I've said it, I've tried to simplify it and state it quickly, but for a lot of people, it's difficult to understand that opposition to a political theory doesn't just have to move horizontally from, you know, from liberalism to communism or to fascism or to some other horizontal alternative. The idea of the fourth political theory isn't like you have room 501, 502, 503, 504. It's literally going down a level, down to the fundamental level, and then back up with a new set of concepts. So that's partly the significance of uh, Heidegger and of the notion of Dasein for Dugan. He wants, even as you may have seen, like, I'll give you another quick example. People know that in liberalism, in progressivism, and in other forms of ideology as well, there's always some implicit notion of time. Like, it's 2023, right? We're not, we're no longer in the Middle Ages, you know, things have progressed. Like, I think it was Justin Trudeau at one point who said, of course, we're going to have 50% women in our uh, cabinet because, you know, it's 2022 or 2023. Like, in other words, as time goes forward, uh, equality should also grow, equity should also grow. And any outdated idea is also ascribed to the past as being outdated or antiquated. So one of the things too that Heidegger had raised as an issue that Dugan takes as a theoretical tool for all of his analysis is what's the relationship between being and time? We can't even take something as apparently simple as time for granted. Certainly not its uh, homogeneity, its unidirectionality, its progressivism. So the whole question of the nature of time comes into question as well with Heidegger. And that's just another tool for criticizing the existing political theories and for articulating a new one. Excellent. So moving on to the criticizing and synthesizing of a new theory, he breaks down these, uh, you know, obviously his, he just says we need to discard liberalism, but he also looks at fascism and communism and says, these are incomplete. These don't work. A lot of people will just say, oh, well, it's just, you know, his fourth political theory is just warmed over fascism or warmed over communism. I think that's weak. I think that's a, that's a really lazy way to look at this because uh, he specifically decries both. But I want to look at the way he decries both of these because I think one of these is sloppy and I'm not sure if this is something that is in the translation, but you translated this. So I, I feel like you'll know you can you can give me a very direct uh, uh, kind of a. Uh, clarification but when he looks at fascism right he, he looks at fascism and he says a big problem of this is racism and we need to reject racism in kind of all of its forms and of course he explains you know the what would be the general understanding of racism i think for most people but he also says we need to reject things like basically economic raci racism that you know glamour fashion uh, even progress itself the notion of progress is racism um this this is seems very strange. I he I feel like he can attack all of these concepts while putting them into discrete things that make a little more sense. Is is this the language he uses intentionally? And if so, why? Yeah, so let me say a few things about it. First, I just want to say for the record, I co-translated this. So the other translator is Marcus Sloboda. Mm -hmm. Both of our translations were put together, so I gotta give credit where it's due. I didn't do the uh this volume, I wasn't the sole translator. But with that said, yeah, so racism. He explicitly rejects 
the biological racism of the Nazi party. And he does so incidentally in uh, other works as well. So in his book, Ethnosociology, where he explains the relevance of the category of the ethnos to our social understanding, he has a section on racism where he says why, in his view, it's an illegitimate category. And there he doesn't apply it to all of the various forms, like you mentioned, fashion, glamour, uh, civilizational racism, technological racism. He focuses more on the field of race studies and says why, in his view, race is not a basically a legitimate social category from the perspective of ethnosociology. In the fourth political theory book, what he, yeah, he extends the concept for sure. You know, you can have like a temporal racism. Temporal racism is the idea that everything new is better than everything old. The civilizational racism, everything Western is better than everything non-Western. Technological racism, same thing, right? If you have if you have yesterday's Apple uh, phone, then you know you're already outdated. You're like a second-class citizen, or you know, third-world uh, slum dog, or something like that. And I think that the key thing he's pointing out there is not that. Well, you know, there's a slight ambiguity. So the, on one hand, he's not saying fashion is racist in the sense that you know, uh, in, in a narrowly biological racist sense. But the idea is that some group elevates itself above all other groups on the basis of a small set of criteria, and on that basis excludes the others as subhuman or you know of less worth, of comparatively subhuman and uh, second and third class citizens. I think he's he's right about the phenomenon. Uh, even if you don't necessarily like the extension of the term racism to, ca to categorize it. The reason I said it's ambiguous is because built into all of those processes, he, mentioned, he does mention in passing, is the universalization of Western standards. And there is an ethnic core to Western civilization for him. There, in other words, there is an ethnic dimension, not a racial, but there's an ethnic core to, the, to what gets universalized. And so somehow still in all of those cases, you have a group or a sector projecting its preferences as universal and delegitimizing everybody else along the way. So yes, strictly speaking, it's not, in those cases, he's just extended the concept, but he wants to make the point, I think, that one of the points he wants to make is that the liberal Western globalist anti-racists who act as though they are, you know, there's no blood on their hands, they don't offend anybody, they're pure tolerance. In fact, when they send their LGBT armies to Orthodox countries and when they try to uh, put all of these attacks on, they're in effect doing the same thing. They're effectively delegitimizing anything other than their own preferences, anything other than their own standards. And it's such a big part of Dugan's model, whether people like this or not is a separate question, but it is. It's such a big part of Dugan's model that you have to take seriously, philosophically, sociologically, anthropologically, theologically, human difference. And in particular, the difference among peoples and civilizations, that any universalization like that is illegitimate. So he uses the strongest term available, you know, somehow, uh, in showing that, but it's true that he extends it further than its normal uh, reach. Now, I think the the part that he says that you do want to take from fascism, because again, he 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 uh, breaks down and repudiates large parts of both of these theories, but he says there are valuable things to be taken from each one of them, and I think that will put a lot of people off. But he he he's very careful to um, 
to say, I'm trying to remember what the exact wording was, break the circle of something. I, I'm yeah, break that. the hermeneutic circle. Yes, thank you. That, uh, the, the idea is a nice circle. one. It's kind, yeah. of like, it's, it's kind of like if the ideology is an organism, the whole thing hangs together. Yeah. But you rip its heart out, let's say, then it's just the corpse. It's no longer an organism, you know, or it's like the pieces have, they no longer hang together in a coherent way when you've deprived them of the thing that gave them their unity. And when they no longer hang together in a coherent way, then you can pick and choose the elements. First, you have to uh, diffuse the bomb or, you know, rip out the heart or whatever metaphor uh, is best to break the hermeneutic circle. So, yeah, once he does that, then he's free to recombine the elements. Right. So now that this monster is no longer roaming the countryside, we can kind of figure out what what made it tick and what things are valuable, and what things were terrible. Um, right. And so the one that he focuses on for fascism is... Uh, is ethnos and is you know he uses the term ethnocentrism which i think a lot of people again you know will get a lot of warning flags on this now obviously he wrote a whole book uh kind of explaining what he probably meant by that so i might be asking you to explain a whole book again but could you get for people who are trying to understand him here what is he saying about taking the idea of ethnos or ethnocentrism from fascism as something valuable that could be carried forward yeah so i'll i'll try to say it like this the, what he's rejecting is the idea of a racial supremacy, you know, like if you're not, if you're not Aryan life, you know, you're going to be destroyed or you're going to be deprived. You're going to be, you know, uh, annihilated, all of those things. So that's a categorical no. Okay. That's a complete rejection to all of that for many reasons that he is explicit about here and, um, elsewhere, but the category of ethnos is a little bit different because the category of ethnos, first of all, as he uses it, it doesn't presuppose superiority or inferiority. This is a model for understanding social phenomena. So he has, uh, in the book Ethnosociology, what he does is he goes over several schools, many different schools of cultural anthropology, social anthropology, and so on. And then he also, after reviewing them, develops his own theory. But one thing you can say is, okay, uh, ethnos is the simplest social group. It lies at the basis of more complex social groups. I'll explain it in a minute. And it's characterized, among other things, by belief in a shared origin. In other words, belief means it's a sociological category. You can change ethnoses. It's not baked into your DNA. Belief in a shared social origin, some shared cultural rights, you know, uh, linguistic uh, proximity and things like that, you know, speaking the same language. When he characterizes the ethnic society in the books, he says they primarily are closed in on themselves. They're not open to the outside world. And whenever something arises in the ethnic society that has the potential to upset it, you have uh, specific figures, for example, the, the figure of the shaman, whose job it is to restore harmonious relations within the ethnic society, within the ethnos. But at some point, the ethnos meets the outside world and it cracks open and becomes something else. It doesn't disappear, but as I say, it's the simplest form of social society for him. And it gets, he has this idea that it gets pushed into the denominator in more complex social forms. So for example, I'll just be, um, I'll just put it like this. In ethnosociology, you have the ethnos is the first one, then the narod, folk or people, that's the second category, then the nation, like nation state, then civil society, global society, and post-society. So that's a spectrum from the simplest social form to the most complex. Uh, global society is very complex, large, all-encompassing. Ethnos is a small, simple, relatively homogenous, and closed in on itself. But as you move from one to the other, you don't erase the ethnic dimension. 
you just, as you mentioned earlier, you know how we put the existential questions in the closet or put them under the floorboards or whatever. Here too, the ethnic component gets pushed down. It doesn't fully disappear. So even in civil society, for example, or even in global society, the ethnic identity hasn't disappeared. It's just been marginalized. So you have, you know, in the third world where the capitalist, where, you know, where you have labor, basically the laboring part of the world, ethnic identity may be more in the forefront. And in the capitalist core of the uh, developed world, the ethnic identity is subsumed, but present. So he has a full analysis, but the key idea here is that the ethnos and its derivatives, folk, nation, civil society, global society, and post society, are sociological category. And understanding them in that way helps us to remove, in his view, the dominant view of civil society and global society. So the analysis basically is we live under globalist circumstances, and these other parts of our sociological self-understanding have been lost. We can recover them and start to get a sense of, uh, of traditions, ways of life, ways of being, ways of relating, ways of forming families, ways of speaking, all of these various phenomena that, that uh, focus on civil society has cut off. So we're amputated souls if we only take the globalist perspective as the full sociology. So in his view, the globalist perspective is derived from ethnosociology as a sort of modification, or as I say, uh, amputation of the big picture. It's a, nice, it's a nice argument and a nice model, but the key thing, it's not a supremacist view. There's no, in his view, there's no ethnos that's better than another. What you have is the tools for analyzing human plurality and diversity. When we say diversity in DEI language, we tend to mean like, you know, uh, all of the ways that you can be a gay liberal or leftist. The, the contemporary diversity doesn't take into account Orthodox Christian Russians or, uh, you know, the varieties of Islamic uh, eschatological faiths. For us, diversity is very narrow and constrained. It's diversity within the paradigm of liberal of post-liberalism. Dugan wants a broader understanding of human diversity, one that includes those who say no to post-liberalism, those who say no to liberal democracy, those who assert some other way of being in the world. And so ethnosociology is one of the ways that he's able to describe that. Yeah, funny enough that you should end with that uh, example because we just had uh, from someone from the White House explaining that our foreign policy is, uh, you know, LGBTQ uh, rights are, are exactly. a key, key aspect of our foreign policy, which is a big part of, that he talks about here in this in this sector as well. It talks about uh, multipolarity versus unipolarity, and one of the things that I think a lot of people, you know, should go eyes wide in with with this is that Dugan is very interested in Russia and Russians' future. He's centric on this, as he would tell you he has to be. Uh, as there's no other way to be. Uh, and he repeatedly talks about the importance of, uh, he calls for a global, uh, global crusade against America and the West, um, and how important it is to end the unipolarity uh, and domination of America and return to a multipolar structure. For a lot of people, that sounds like he's trying to start World War III. Um, I don't think he likes America, <laughs> but... Uh, but I understand his point uh, as someone who would prefer the United States to care more about its own people than the empire uh, of elites that don't care at all about uh, about those uh, in the United States. I also wish that they would you know pull away from from this strategy. 
his, his seems far more aggressive, maybe because he sees this as a direct threat to his geopolitical existence. But he's very clear that like collapsing this this unipolar system is is a key part of this. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot there. And some of it I feel I have to comment on as a sort of um, priority, which is this. It would be weird, I think, for Americans who love America to find themselves attracted to an author who sometimes has these anti-American or anti-Western formulations. Like if you read that somebody says uh, American empire should be destroyed and you're an American patriot, you love America and what it stands for and its traditions and its possibilities and you want to restore American greatness and sound common sense and all of that, it would be natural to categorize Dugan, you know, as a hostile player, as somebody who uh, hates America and wants to destroy it. My view is that on the basis of the textual evidence, he is pretty explicit, uh, for example, in the Great Awakening versus the Great Reset and elsewhere, that the West itself has been occupied by post-liberalism, post-modern, post-modernity and anti-Western sentiments. And that he wants to, he doesn't hate the West. This is, I can tell you very explicitly, I wrote about this in my uh, Dugan book uh, because the passages are super stark and unambiguous in my view. He says he doesn't hate the West, he loves the West. He loves its authors, which is absolutely true. He's written many, many volumes about the countries of the West, which is true. What he hates is what the West has become under the dominance of people who hate the West. And the task is to liberate, among other things, the, the global task of the fourth political theory would be to liberate the West for its own traditions. Nobody could say right now that the modern Western world is true to the best elements of what made it the West. Somehow it's at war with the best elements of what made it the West. It's censoring and punishing and attacking the best things that made it the West. Philosophy, faith, beauty, and all the rest of it. So he says at various times in various books that the war is not against the West. The war is against the, against the liberalism that has hijacked the West. Take that for what it's worth. Again, maybe not everybody will see it in those terms. Another thing he said is, look, you have to recognize that the United States is the center of the world as it stands. And you can reject America's international liberal hegemony. In other words, like you said, the fact that it must export LGBTQIA+, values everywhere around the world as a key element of its foreign policy, its destruction of other peoples and civilizations, you can reject that perfectly well in full consistency with believing that America should remain a pole in the world, should assert its rights and interests in the world, should defend itself and be strong and be flourishing in the world. What he doesn't like is the universalization and destruction of other civilizations and peoples that comes as a function of that. Now, nobody likes to have their side of the battle squashed and destroyed. He's all in as a Russian patriot on the defense of Russian civilization, Russian existence. He sees it as a good thing. And he's very cautious about the forces that are trying to destroy it. And when he reaches out to American audiences and when he writes about America these days, it's definitely with an eye to the fact that something similar is happening in America, that the forces of the Great Reset, as he characterizes it in The Great Awakening versus The Great Reset, are as much at war in and against America as they are at war against other peoples and civilizations. So for what it's worth, um, people may find that to be slippery. They may find that to be just merely political rhetoric. But I think we have some evidence that Dugan is um, making points that resonate, namely that there are a lot of 
people, freedom-loving American patriots who find his criticisms of the Great Reset and his criticisms of global liberalism, his criticisms of the postmodern left, powerful. And the fact that he's able to articulate them and give us a new way of thinking about them doesn't mean we have to accept everything he's ever written anywhere, but they do mean that we should make and take, we should make the most of and take the best of what we find in the critics of modern liberalism. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to understand that pointing out that Dugan has powerful ideas or criticisms in certain areas doesn't mean a wholesale embrace of his positions or his his worldview, his outlook. There are many really important thinkers that if you totally embl- embrace their every part of their philosophy, you'd be horrified. Um, and so it's it's really important to be able to take these things, think about them, see how they interact with other ideas that you're exploring without you know, assuming that that someone who's talking about them is just on board for every you know geopolitical objective or 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 every part of someone's uh, writings, that I think that's something people need to keep central in their mind. But that said, I also want to make sure we touch just real briefly on uh, his criticism of Marxism because he doesn't he doesn't leave that alone either. He says that the you know the problem with Marxism is it's a wholly materialistic. Uh, it's wholly atheistic economic determinism. He says this too is a he's, he agrees with many of its uh, its uh, critiques of liberalism and 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 capitalism, but he has a serious problem with uh, with kind of the resulting system that replaces uh, those things and thinks that it in general fails as a reaction to the first political theory. Yeah, that's right. So he says exactly. It's unidirectional progressivism. It's historical materialism. It's atheism. It's idea that you can exhaust your account of social and human life on the basis of class analysis. All of that is narrow and much of it is false. He explicitly rejects the, the pretty much everything we mentioned there, the historical materialism, the progressivism, the unidirectionalism, and the focus on class. On the other hand, yes, there are aspects of its criticism of capitalism that he thinks are valuable and that can be combined with other perspectives. So just the fact that you're an anti-Marxist doesn't mean you have to have no interest in uh, labor rights, no interest in elements of social justice. Again, if they're combined with other sound observations and somehow merged with other basic core principles. So he's anti-Marxist in that sense, but he does think that the the criticism of capitalism has something to offer. Emphasis on justice does have something to offer. And uh, one of the things too that People may find surprising or exciting or whatever the case is, depending on who's reading it, that I like at any rate is this experimental spirit where he says, look, you can do you can read Marxism from the right in a way that is uh, deriving useful insights for your political project on the basis when you put him in a different context, you can derive new insights from him or a figure like Julius Evola, traditionalist typically considered on the right or on the far right. Dugan says, read him from the left. In other words, the key idea in the, especially the first few chapters here of the fourth political theory is we're so used to automatic ideological analysis. Instantly, like we're running chat GPT, the liberal interpretations on the table or the Marxist interpretation or the fascist interpretation. And somehow that's all recycled, well-known and unthinking. And you can interrupt that process of automatic quote unquote reasoning by doing some experimental juxtapositions, by doing operations like the one we said, where reject the thing that makes the theory a coherent theory and then see what remains. So even when he discusses, for example, the idea that 
having rejected the individual from liberalism, the class from communism, the race from Nazism, and the state from fascism. And he says, well, so what's going to be the key actor of the fourth political theory? At first, he says, we can imagine a compound subject, some combination of these. And a very important, he says, we'll treat this as a preliminary exercise, a preliminary methodological exercise. In other words, when it comes to political concepts, ideas, and ideologies, we have to learn again how to think, not just how to automatically spew and regurgitate previously processed hundred-year-old ideological phrases. So one of the nice things about this book is I think that it does that. It invites us to play around a little bit as a warm-up exercise for the serious work of constructing an alternative. And again, this idea that we have to construct an ideological alternative, he says, one of the presuppositions, this goes without saying, but it's worth saying anyways, one of the presuppositions is um, you're interested in this project only if you have some opposition, some revulsion, to put it strongly, some opposition to put it neutrally, towards the reigning ideological status quo. If it strikes you as odd or as strange or as undesirable that America should have the as a key component of its foreign policy, the promotion of um, you know, what the, this, that statement was, or if you find, you know, the Marxification of higher academia uh, and lower academia, you know, K to 12, not to mention uh, undergraduate and graduate studies. If you have any sense that that's wrong, then the task is really to understand how we got here, what's going on, how has the situation changed, and on what grounds could we possibly advance a meaningful alternative? So, um, that's just another another nice thing here. And rereading Marxism from the right, or let me say one other, um, not to go on about this, but just to give the listeners another taste or flavor for it. He's like, when liberalism was fighting communism and fascism, it was to see who inherits the right to be the right to claim themselves as most modern. Mm. Liberalism won. That means liberalism proved that it was most modern. But in losing, that showed you that there was something non-modern about communism and fascism. And the fact that there's some non-modern trace or residue, which explains in part why they lost, also can pique our interest. Because suddenly, if we reject what's most modern about communism and fascism, we may still uh, be curious about what's not modern in them that can be recovered. And when he talks about communism, he says the eschatological, mythological structure of the communist faith and the communist uh, story about you know the development of society. So... That's part and parcel of the return of myths and archaics. What about treating communism not as a scientific account of society, but as a eschatological myth? That could be interesting and so on. Absolutely. So there's one more thing I want to uh, get to before we kind of go to the questions from the audience. Uh, again, guys, there's so much here. We, we've barely scratched the surface. Hopefully we'll end up doing some more of these. But I want to get to one more uh, concept before we go. And this is the monotonic process. Now, I found this one particularly interesting because, again, it touches on something uh, that uh, that neo-reactionary theory, Nick Land specifically, and accelerationism uh, hits on a lot, which is uh, cybernetics and the closed feedback loop, the closed positive feedback loop. And he seems to be saying in this uh, that it's really important that we basically be able – he gives the – the idea of a, of a governor on a, on an engine, you know, you need to, once the reaction has started, you really need something that's able to, you know, stop the feeding of fuel into the engine, or you end up with a, with a very serious, uh, you know, uh, consequence. And he says, basically we've lost this, or we, we, we've engineered this out of a lot of what we do. 
Uh, and so he talks about the need to kind of reintroduce the ability to apply negative feedback and control uh, kind of kind of this reaction of deterioration. And I think that's really interesting because I would like that to be true, but I'm not sure that it's possible. Uh, and this is this is what so many people in in the new reactionary sphere mean when they say the only way out is through. That basically there is no way to escape the self-exciting feedback loop. There is no escape from cybernetics as it is now. And we don't have a way to control the, you know, this uh, self-accelerating process. But what, what do you think Dugan is kind of, what, what would he use to apply kind of the brakes to this runaway train? If there even is a chance for that. Well, I would say a few things. First of all, he's analyzed in the ethnosociology books what he also mentions in that chapter in passing, which is kinds of ritual like the sacrifice or the gift and other forms of organization that are designed, you know, so social uh, rituals, let's say, that are designed to have this effect. So he may think that um, you could reinstitute some version of that or you could uh, support that type of thing. But even just learning about how to oppose even just learning that monotonic processes are destructive of life and then putting our attention not on growth but on life what can you do to support the cycles and rhythms of life and what kinds of practices have done well in doing the, that before and what can be recovered so a lot of his teaching is uh like in the return of myths and archaics what used to work that we left behind that we could recover so the possibility of recovery you have to clear the playing field to be able to do that the critique of monotonic processes is part of that i would say um that's the key besides the ethnosociological dimension like i say these various uh, ritual forms theological forms religious forms um things you could do in i mean you have to get off the off the one-way technological um train that's for sure mm -hmm. and i think for him i mean he mentions that you can use technology against technology that's he said even opponents of the internet society can still use the internet to accomplish like uh some they can stop using the tool using the tools themselves so that's a part of it but in my view and he may have more to say about this but in my, of all the things that i've read and that i've seen the key thing here is understanding what's going on and orienting our thought our you know our comportment our lives towards like away from the darkness as it were towards the light or you know you have to recognize that you're on a runaway train and get off it so you asked, like, uh, what's his specific way? Partially, I think, in understanding it, in grasping it, in seeing it, you already have one foot off. So it's not in an, he doesn't resign himself to the inevitability of the process. Because from where he's coming, what we didn't say is that, you know, he borrows the critique of capitalism from communism and he borrows the ethnos from fascism, but he also borrows human freedom from liberalism. Mm -hmm. And so we always have the freedom to say no. We always have the freedom to oppose something to something and we always have the freedom to go another way but in order for us to realize that freedom in order for that freedom to have a chance we must see the alternatives we must understand the situation if you don't know you're on a moving train you can't get off of it once you get the analysis right once you've set up an alternative then you can leap onto another as it were timeline and uh, operate differently or you go to your destruction yeah I, I, and I, I don't blame him or anyone else for not having a ready answer for how that actually gets solved. It's, it's just something I think about a lot because for Nick land, uh, 
you know, he describes something like gunboat diplomacy as just pulling the the rods out of the nuclear reactor. And then you, you just lose, you know, you have this, these traditions, you have this society, you have these rituals that protect the, the society from the process, from come from kind of this acceleration. But once a further accelerated society comes by and just demolishes those protections, then you can't, you can no longer contain kind of what, what's going to come next. And so kind of once, once the process has escaped one society, if it inevitably crashes into another, it will collapse all the defenses of that society from this process. And then you end up in a scenario for land, at least where you have uh, the, the, the collapse of decision space where people no longer, because each uh, decision, each, the technology is self-exciting with the production, you end up in a scenario where each decision is made in shorter and shorter feedback loops and people lose the ability to actually protect themselves through ritual and culture from kind of this acceleration. And then the whole process has just escaped again, kind of human control because the, the, the time you would need to think about and implement cultural protections is is always collapsing uh and so in, into smaller and smaller pieces and you kind of that that decision eventually leaves human hands i hope he's very wrong about that and i hope dubin dugan's far more right uh but but it's it's just again it's just i thought it was very fascinating it, two guys coming from very different uh points but but reaching very similar uh, a very similar uh moment of decision within very different uh situations and, and, and applications to which uh, of, of solutions for that mm -hmm. or lack thereof i guess yeah dugan and later in the book acknowledges that things are running out of human hands and he says you have to propose uh what he calls this is going to sound obscure but sometimes he writes in the spirit a political angelology where su suddenly mm -hmm. that these automatic processes that are taking place they still he still wants to try to interpret them in a way where they can go either you know, in the direction of the angels or in the direction of the demons, as opposed to it's all destined to go a certain way. Um, but that's for what it's worth. Yeah, I was actually going to definitely bring that up uh, as well. But we again, we're just we can't get to everything. We can't hope to touch it all. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. But maybe we can explore that uh, a little more in another time. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and uh, just take the questions of the people here real quick. But before we do, can you tell people about where to find your excellent work, all the, the courses and everything you do, where they can find all that? Sure. So millermanschool.com is where I sell courses on Leo Strauss, Plato, Aristotle, Dugan, Heidegger, Nietzsche, and other figures. Uh, Duganbook.com is where you can see a book that I wrote on Dugan, as well as my book on Heidegger. I'm on Twitter, M underscore Millerman. That's my main social media platform. And I have many free videos on YouTube on Dugan, Heidegger, and these other figures. So uh, I translated, you know, I started about 11 years ago or so. And uh, in that time, I've given many, uh, you know, I've said a lot about Dugan and written a lot about him. And if people want to learn more uh, besides other conversations that we may have, just look up, you know, Millerman Dugan on YouTube and you'll see a lot of different sources. Absolutely, guys. You should definitely uh, check that out. Let's go ahead and get our questions here real quick. Uh, Creeper Weirdo for $20. Thank you very much, sir. Apparently, with the rise of AI in the tech field, a lot of atheist uh, thinkers have started talking about living in a simulation. It's really funny, Dawkins. You know, I'd rather, I'm rather fond of the idea of a creator. Yeah, it does feel like you can never truly escape this, right? Like we get, uh, there, there's a many, many parallel universes or everyone's in a simulation. Uh, so many substitutes, uh, technological substitutes for the divine 
uh, I feel like that's a, an extremely modern uh, necessity to try to capture something that you really can't capture in the technological language, in the modern language. Uh, and you're only going to see more of this as people try, as more of these um, more esoteric and traditional concepts kind of reemerge and people search for modern language to explain phenomena that uh, that doesn't really have the capacity uh, to do. But let me see here. Uh, Pranami and Chonsky for $5. Uh, what would Mr. Millen's response be to some right-wingers who say Dugan's philosophy is just a post-hoc rationalization for Russian state interests? I think you touched on that some there, but do you, do you want to expand a little bit? Yeah, I would say a couple of different things. So first of all, if... Dugan were merely interested in the defense of Russian state interests, it wouldn't be necessary for him to do 99% somehow of the theoretical work that he's done. You don't necessarily have to go into Heidegger and Husserl and all of these other thinkers in order to provide a justification or a rationalization for state interests. I think the evidence of you know 30 or so years of writing as you go over and you see is that he's driven to understand like several key philosophers are the question of how to correlate the realm of the political with things like metaphysics, theology, and ontology. Because as a thinking being, you're placed before that question, before that problem. He clearly does also want to defend Russia. He says the fourth political theory in the introduction is for Russia a question to be or not to be. In other words, it's existential for Russia. But his analysis of what it is to be Russian is really rich and complex, whereas you could have a very uh, vulgar, you know, vulgar Russian nationalism that doesn't rise up to the heights of anything of intellectual substance. But he always has avoided that. In fact, he, he debates with Russian nationalists because he's an anti-nationalist. That's hard to understand. He's, you know, for Eurasian Empire as opposed to uh, Russian nationalism and so on. Um, my key, my the, sort of the key pillar of my response would be if that's all he wanted to do, he could do it not this way. We have to understand why does he think we have to go into Plato? Why does he think we have to go into Heidegger? Why do we have to raise questions about the ontology of the future? In fact, he even says at one point uh, in one of his books, I think it's the second Heidegger book, he says, any talk of a Russian national idea or any talk of a defense of Russian interests, let's say in the terms of your question of Russian state interests, that isn't rooted in an answer to the question, what does it mean to be Russian? Like, what is the, what is it, you know, why do we even want to defend being Russian? Why not just be globalist? Why not just be liberal? Why not just be Western? In other words, even to defend Russia for Dugan means to understand the whole height and depth of what it is to be to be your ethnicity, to be a member of your civilization, to be a thinking being, to be a political being. It's a big, uh, a big task. And that's, that's why I always characterize him as a philosophical supremacist, to make it clear that it's the philosophy and not the politics, in my view, if we could separate them neatly like that for a moment, that runs the show. Uh, Cripper Weirdo here for $5. I've also heard an argument for uh, the idea that we're moving towards neo-medievalism. Uh, uh, so people could mean that in a couple different ways. Uh, for instance, uh, a lot of people who just throw around neo-feudalism just mean that you're not going to own anything and be happy. And in that sense, uh, that's certainly the goal of a lot of people who are involved in uh, the uh, the World Economic Forum and others like that, uh, a system in which you're entirely uh, dependent on Leviathan, uh, but in a globalist sense. Uh, for others, they might mean something like, uh, you know, uh, Moldbug or Curtis Yarvin's uh, patchwork 
in which you kind of have the king, you have a, a, a king, the neo monarch, but each individual, rather than being bound to the land, is uh, has full exit uh, and kind of votes with their feet. Um, and then I guess you could also have people who mean more a return to the idea that we're returning to these more regional communities, these ones in which you kind of have the protection of landed gentry that would create again would would almost reconstruct these barriers that both land and uh and uh Dugan talk about uh that would protect you from kind of this deracination that would kind of uh reterritorialize you back into something that uh that was more cohesive and culturally uh, uh resilient uh but it, it though all all of those could be possible meetings of neo feudalism or uh medievalism so i hope i did my best to cover all those creeper weirdo uh, Pernomi and Chonsky for $5. Uh, does Dugan draw on Evola for his understanding of race? Does biology have a place in his system? Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. I was going to mention that both Evola and, uh, and um, uh, uh, Spangler, who he, both of whom he references, uh, had an understanding of race that was, I think, closer to the ethnos that you were talking about, where, where the, both, both of those guys kind of thought that the uh, at least I haven't read Evola uh, completely so I can't I can't speak to him but at least Spangler had an understanding of race that was uh, much less biological in fact he called the biological essentialism of race a disaster for kind of the human the understanding of human being uh, and so uh, d does he draw from either of those to your knowledge just on the spot I don't remember him discussing Evola in the criticism of race that's in ethnosociology or mm -hmm. as one of the key figures for the understanding of the ethnos in ethnosociology I know that he's written about Evola in several different places some of which I've translated uh, before separately from this book but I just don't remember him talking about uh, race in Evola he might have but I'm just not familiar with it gotcha all right, and then uh, Maxwell Bliss for two dollars. How's Ukraine war? Uh, how is the Ukraine war is going? How does it end? Uh, yeah, I'll be honest. Uh, there's so much uh, misinformation and confusion and constant propaganda about the Ukraine war that I find it very difficult to follow. I know there's a lot of guys sitting on Telegram, like uh, you know, looking at every single post and trying to decipher the actual situation. In the Ukraine war, one of the interesting things, of course, about our situation is uh, the more the narrative fractures and the more uh, ability of each side to kind of just have this insane amount of information flow, uh, the less certain it becomes. The more information we have, the less certain the understanding and the narrative of, of how that war is going uh, is uh, is happening. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It, it seems insane that the United States seems to be willing to bleed its entire treasury and its entire arsenal and that of the wider West dry in an attempt to have a battle of war of attrition with a country that's doesn't seem to be directly threatening it uh, at the moment, but that does seem to be uh, the, the, the uh, position of both of the parties of the United States right now, most, both of the major parties. And so I'm not sure uh, how it will end. I just know that it seems almost impossible to follow at this point. All right, guys. So that said, I think we got to all of our questions. Uh, once again, make sure that you're checking out all of Michael Michael Mil sorry Michael Millerman's uh, stuff. Michael, can you remind everyone one more time, just real quick, where to look for your uh, your courses and such? Millermanschool.com is where I have my courses. M underscore Millerman on Twitter. Uh, if you go to dugancourse.com, you can get my Dugan book for free. You don't even have to put in an email address or anything. There's just a link where you can just get the book. 
uh, YouTube, look me up. I've given many, many interviews. But yeah, millermanschool.com is the school. Excellent, guys. And of course, if this is your first time here, please make sure you're subscribing to this channel. If you want to catch these as podcasts, of course, you can go ahead and go to uh, the Oren McIntyre show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Make sure that you leave a rating and review when you do so. It really helps with all the algorithm stuff. I just had a new piece go up on the blaze today, so you can make sure to check that out. And of course, this is on all kinds of alt tech stuff as well. If you want to go to Odyssey, if you want to go to Rumble, if you want to watch it on blaze TV, you can catch all these broadcasts on those platforms as well. Thanks for coming by guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.